So this morning, as we continue this series where we talk about what it looks like to live this uh, life that the kingdom of God describes and offers, a life that is usually upside down, flipped it seems, a reversal of the values of the, of the world, we're talking this morning about wealth upside down. And uh, it is no coincidence that we're talking about it on the morning that we're um, also talking about how we as a church can give, but I'm grateful for the fact that we are not talking about money and about generosity and about wealth um, because our church is in a place where we feel that we need to come to you and say, we need money. Um, uh, Don't get me wrong, you know, we need money all the time, but um, we... uh, we have recognized, I think, I think every time that I've been in a finance committee meeting, a trustee meeting, um, those are the people that manage our, manage our facility and all of the things that we have here, um, a church council meeting, I think almost every time we've opened, someone has opened the meeting with a prayer where they have said, God, we are so grateful for the resources you've blessed us with and the fact that we are able to really simply ask how you want us to use them rather than worry about where we will get the resources that we need to make church happen and do the things that you've put before us. We are so grateful for that because it is uncommon for a church to not have debt as we don't have any debt. It's uncommon for a church to be able to uh, set a budget each year and be able to make that budget. And we are so encouraged because we feel like God has through your giving and through um, your generosity um, done that. It's actually been generations after generation of people in this church who have done that and allowed us to be in this place. And so as we talk about wealth, we talk about it as we have this larger conversation about what does this upside-down life look like. And I'll tell you right now, little disclaimer, I didn't tell the first service this, but maybe it'll make you rest a little easier. I'm not going to give you any numbers this morning, okay? I'm not going to, like, tell you that you have to do anything specific this morning, okay? But you're going to come, hopefully, by the end of this to wish more than anything that I had. Um, We're reading um, in one of the Gospels... In Matthew chapter 13, we're looking at two short verses this morning. And no, that's not because I scoured the Bible for anything that talks about money, desperate to find something, and I only found two verses. Uh, Jesus talks more about money than he does about any other single topic, it seems. Uh, But uh, our desire is to find places in Scripture where it really best summarizes what this kingdom of God approach is to wealth and to money. How it's different if you're a part of this kingdom versus the kingdom of the world. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus does the best job of summing it up concisely. He, ta- he, he often does it in parables. And, and this one in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, is one of those parables. He says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There's another parable um, where Jesus talks about a man who um, finds a pearl. And this pearl is so valuable that he does the same thing. He, He leaves it there, he goes, sells everything he has so that he can own the land that the pearl is on. Um, this is a very concise way of talking about the kingdom 
And the question that I have for you as you hear this is simply this. Do you feel sorry for this man? Do you feel sorry for the guy in this verse here? This is a parable, which means this likely didn't really happen. But you can imagine what this would look like, a person walking through a field and stumbling across something or digging or doing something and finding treasure. How excited they would be, how happy they would be. It must be significant in order for them to be able to know that by selling everything they have, this thing is still worth more than that. They cover it up very shrewdly, run off, sell everything they have. You would imagine if this were real, like this cannot possibly be a person who's married because that would be a tough conversation, right? Like, let me guess, magic beans, you know, in the field. Sure, why not, right? So as you think about this man sitting there with his field with treasure in it, do you feel sorry for him? This poor guy, he's got nothing. Now he's got nothing. He sold everything that he has and all he's got is a field. No, we don't feel sorry for this man. We don't think that he's made a great mistake, even though he's done something that seems very unusual. What does this parable mean? This parable means that this man has found something worth more than everything he owns, and that because of that, it redefined all of the stuff that he had. It redefined value for him. He came across something that completely changed like how he saw his possessions and made him realize that these things are not what I thought they were because he found something better. We've, uh, we've, we know what this is like. I mean, as much as we talk about money being important to people, it isn't everything to everybody. And you've maybe been in a situation where you've seen immediately how much family is more important than money. Maybe friends are more important than money. Maybe your health is more important than money, right? Uh, if you've been diagnosed with a disease and you're getting sicker and sicker and you think, I would give all of my money to be better. Or I have a loved one who feels the same way. I would give all of my money for that person to be better. Why? Because you know that's more important than money. I'd rather live in impoverished. I'd rather live forced to depend on others for the rest of my life, not knowing what I'll have the next day if I know I have that person with me. I mean, we know how this feels, Right? And so we understand this idea that you can come across something that makes all the valuable stuff in your life before that seem not as valuable as it was before. And that's what the kingdom of God is, Jesus says. Why does this parable involve buying the field and selling all that he had? Right? Why does he have to sell all that he has? Why couldn't he sell some of what he had? Or his savings or a jar of perfume in his house or something like that, his favorite goat, I don't know. Because when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God again and again, he says the same thing. It will cost you everything. The cost is always the same. It's everything. Jesus, the great salesman, right, saying, here's the deal, you're going to like it, everything. It's going to cost you everything. He must be pretty confident in his product, right? He is. He says, when you come across the kingdom of God, and you see it, even a glimpse of it for what it is, if you really see it and really understand it, you'd be foolish not to give up everything that you have for it, not to give your life for it. Jesus says we die, we lose our life so that we gain life in order to gain life. And he means it. He means you give up, like, you give up 
the control of yourself, of your ambitions, of your passions, of your relationships. In a culture where relationships were the most important thing, especially your family, he said, hate your father and mother. Not because he actually wants them to like despise their family, but because he's saying to these people shocking things to point out to them that even your relationships cannot be more important than the kingdom of God. Something important for a group of people, many of whom would be disowned by family members when they found out that they were following this new claimed Messiah. And so the kingdom of God is something that is so impossibly and incomparably good that it completely and profoundly transforms the concept of value and wealth in the life of a believer. This is what all of our understanding of wealth in the kingdom of God comes from, is this idea. This idea that if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his, a part of the kingdom of God, you are one who has experienced something and has taken possession of something that has made you wealthier than all of the other stuff you could have in life. Were you to give all of your possessions to have it, you would still be rich. There are rules in the kingdom to how wealth is handled, and the first one is a good one. God will make you rich. Take a picture of this and put it on the internet and see what happens. That was a good two and a half years. New pastor search starting... All right. God will make you rich, wealthy far beyond what is equivalent to all of the stuff that you currently own, what you're worth today. God, through, this, through his kingdom, God, in your life, you will be wealthier. You will be richer in that than all this other stuff can get you. We talk about this often in the church, but often people abuse this idea and say, God wants you to be rich. God wants uh, you to be wealthy in terms of material things. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible shows us again and again and again that people, when they encounter him, become so rich with what they found that they are willing to do some pretty crazy things and walk away from and let go of everything if called to do that. Some are called to give up everything, walk away from everything, and others are not. And so we all just hope and pray, right, that we get to be in the second category. <laughs> now, we have an excuse to this idea that, if, because you see, if God makes you rich, then that means that the stuff, the wealth that you have in your life isn't what makes you rich. It's not what brings you all of the things you were seeking money for to begin with. And it means that you have a totally different relationship with all that stuff now. This matters a lot because why does money matter so much to us? Not because we're a bunch of Scrooge McDucks and all we want to do is swim around in a money pit, in a, in a, in a, in a, Money bin, right? Yeah. It's a bin. Okay, yeah. Lewis has one at his house. That's why I said that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're the guy that... Yeah. <laughs> like, ouch, right? How much would that hurt, jumping into a bin full of coins? But I thought that as a kid even, but somehow he pulls it off. It's the duck bill or something. 
we don't actually love money in that way. Like, we just want to, like, look at it and hold it and stuff. Some people do. That's kind of weird. You know, you're told when you're a kid money's really dirty, you know? Uh, and so, you know, you're not supposed to, I don't know, put it in your mouth. I always put it in my mouth when I was a kid, and you could choke on it. How have we gotten to this point in the message? I don't know. It certainly wasn't in my notes. Um, we don't actually love money for money's sake. We love money because of what it gives us. Wow, Ed, you're really blowing our minds here, right? Money gives us comfort, provision, security. Money makes it so that we're okay tomorrow, not just today, but it also makes it so that we're okay today. Why do we tell people to be wise with money, to earn money, to save money, to invest money so they can have more money, to leave money for their family and future generations? Because money is how we know that we will be okay. Money takes care of us because it buys us all the stuff that takes care of us. And the more that we have sitting in savings, the longer that we know that we will go if something terrible were to happen and we got no more money at that point. Money buys self-sufficiency. Money gives us the ability to know that we can depend on ourselves and that we won't have to depend on someone else. And our biggest complaint against this idea that, well, if God makes me rich, then my money isn't something I need to care about as much as a possession of mine. It's something that I have this relationship with. No, you say, I want, like, it's important to care about money. It's important to do everything you can to earn and save as much as you can because it would be foolish not to. It's kind of the pragmatic, uh, the practical objection to it. Like, Practically speaking, we can't really do the things Jesus calls us to do in the Bible, right? We would not be able to live our lives after that. And so we do with money in the Bible what uh, we would never do with a lot of other things. We say, well, that's clearly crazy. It's unreasonable. It would never work. So we'll run it through our filter of what's reasonable, what's pragmatic, what's practical for life. And usually that filter is determined by all the people that I'm, that I'm used to living around and what they do with their money. And then we go, now, uh, now what does it look like? Well, if we did that with other things, especially people who consider the Bible to be the word of God, we would flip out if people did that with other things. If we said, oh, I can't take something in the Bible as being true unless I can run it through the most pragmatic filter that I have. But we do that every time Jesus talks about money. Why? Because we say that we need to be self-reliant. We must be independent. And that's what wealth gives us the ability to do. Doesn't God want me to save enough and to have enough and to earn enough to know that I can take care of myself and I can take care of my family no matter what happens? Doesn't God help those who help themselves? Doesn't he like, I mean, come on, let's be honest, right? Doesn't he like better the people who are taking care of themselves than the people who can't take care of themselves? I mean, I know I do, right? We believe this about money. We believe that the worst thing that you can do is not be able to take care of yourself, to not be able to guarantee that you'll provide for yourself. One of the things that we lament much of the time in the church is that we live in what seems like an increasingly secular age. It's like the world is getting more and more secular, and so we fight it as much as we can. But what we don't realize is that the majority of the biggest ways that we give into a secular mindset, we give into without ever even thinking about them. One example is the way we approach the Bible, right? 
As soon as rationalism began to, you know, people would challenge the Bible with science and say, if it can't be proven scientifically, then it can't be true. And then it makes us say, well, then, then I have to be able to explain with science every single thing that I read about in the Bible. Otherwise, then it, obviously it must not be true. I have to have such a sense of certainty about all of it. I have to be an expert in order to ever even talk about it. Because all of a sudden, in the world in which we live, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to have faith. That's what it means to share my faith, is to know all of it. But because we have this sort of secular mindset that says, uh, you have to be able to prove everything that you say with like, scientific inquiry that like, you yourself are pointing to right in front of me, and I won't believe it, I won't hear it, we can't, we can't take it seriously, we can't trust it in any way. Uh, one of the other things that we believe is so secular is this idea that I depend on me. I rely on myself. You, if you're in my family, depend maybe on me. That there is no better, there's no worse thing than to not be able to take care of myself, than to not be able to guarantee that I'll provide, not just tomorrow, but for the next day. And so we say God wants us to do everything we can to have as much as we can, but then he also wants us to give some of it away too. You know, he talks about that a little bit. So we do, we give a little bit of it away, and then we know that God is happy with us because we care for ourselves. In fact, honestly, he's probably less mad at the people who are greedy with their money than he is with the people who, like, squander it. I mean, I'm sure he's pretty upset about that, right? You know, he, he at least admires that the greedy people are taking care of themselves, you know. No one else has to. But if God makes us rich, then... Do we have to live each day of our life in fear that we won't be able to take care of ourselves down the road? Do we have to feel the same fear-filled burden of taking care of ourselves with this God in our lives? Or is that not the most secular way that we could possibly live? To say that we're a part of a kingdom and we serve a God who is able to care for our every need and yet we still have to live with the fear, like we don't. There's a, uh, there's a degree to which we do this, and it's, it makes us focus so much on like earning and, and saving and trying to be able to provide for ourselves. But the truth is, the, the root of sin, the, the original sin that man would commit against God would be one of self-reliance. God creates Adam and Eve, puts him in the garden, says, I will take care of you. I want you to let me take care of you. And what do they do? They take the first opportunity to show God, we can be independent of you. It's not because we don't like you. It's because, you know, it's more predictable that way. And then we see all throughout Scripture that every time he gets, it, every time he gets an opportunity that his people will see, God forces his people to rely on him 
instead of giving them the ability to be totally independent of him because that's what they always want, right? He forces the Israelites to rely on him constantly for their food, for their shelter, for their protection. And what we see is when the people, all they want is to be independent. They just want to, you're going to give us food, great. Give us an ability to save it up, okay? Nope, not a chance, right? Why? Why is the garden, why is the tree even in the middle of the garden to begin with? Who planned that out? Because you choose. Will I take fruit from the tree of life and trust God to provide for me? Or do I need to be God? Do I need to be God? Wealth is probably the biggest way that we attempt to be God in our own lives. But if God makes us rich already, then that completely changes the stuff that we have and the freedom with which we can hold on to it or the freedom with which we can let it go and how much joy we take in those things compared to other things. Because when stuff is what gives you life, when it is the foundation that you have to build your life on, right? And I mean, when we think about it, when we think about raising people and them growing up, right? What is it more than anything? It seems to be you get a job, right? That's what independence, and then you get your own place, and you get a car, and the whole thing is built around the idea that I earn money, and I take care of myself, to be as independent as I can. But when we live this way, the thing that we make into our foundation becomes something more than just assurance that we'll have a roof over our head tomorrow night. In fact, Jesus speaks about money, and he indicates that it has this power. Wealth has this power to it to become something more than a lot of other things. We read about it in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He refers to money as a God. Why? Because that's exactly what you make it into when it's what takes care of you. When your security is is connected to what you have, what you earn, what you save, what you hold on to, what you possess, and what you spend for yourself, then it will become your God. You will need it to have life. The thing that provides becomes your master. And Jesus is telling his disciples very clearly, You cannot serve God and serve money. You must ultimately put your faith in one. And the crazy thing is there are really rich people out there who don't serve money. There are really poor people who do serve money. And so if this is the relationship that we have with wealth, then the good news is we can do something with our wealth that those who, don't, who aren't rich in God can't do. Because if I'm rich in God, and if I have a different relationship with all this stuff, then there's this thing that I can be with it, and it's called generous. And so what Jesus says about living in this upside-down kingdom is it is going to be evident in your life by your generosity. The degree to which you can give away the things that you have, the resources you have, is the primary way that you will live out an upside-down view of wealth. Because your belief is that by giving away, you don't lose. It is that by giving away, you actually build wealth. Generosity is an investment. 
It is an investment not just in yourself, although it does something within you when you give freely, not expecting in return, not transactionally. But it also is an investment into the kingdom of God because God has set things up in such a way that we, he gives us the resources we have to steward over, which means it's not really ours. We're like a, we're like a financial investor of someone else's money. He says, I'm giving you this. Now you spend it in a way that shows, that, in a way that worships me, that glorifies me, that honors me. And do it by being generous because of what it will do for you and to you, what it will do to those around you to see you be generous, and what it will do for the sake of the kingdom. Because lots of the time that you're going to be generous, in fact, most of the time, it's probably going to be where no one can see. It should be in a way that no one can see. Because, right, I mean, we've learned that, you know, you could actually give stuff away and get a lot more mileage out of it than if you spent that money on yourself, if people see it. Money is not an evil thing, but most of the time it is used for evil. Because money is primarily used in pursuit of self-interest. My son, Tegan, he's always asking me about, I mean, literally all he wants to talk about all the time is superheroes and supervillains. That is it. Like, all the time. Like, just every question you could imagine. We had a, we had a, we had a 20-minute car ride where the entire conversation was how Bane broke Batman's back and how he recovered. But he doesn't want to see a picture of him. He doesn't want to see a video. He doesn't want any, because it's too scary. He's like, it sounds way too scary. I don't want to see it. Just, just tell me everything you can about it, right? And so he's always asking me about villains. He's like, you know, what makes this guy bad? What makes this guy bad? Why is this guy bad? It's like he thinks I can, I don't know. I know them better than the good guys. And what I've been able to say to him every time, I have to figure out, you have to figure out how to like answer these very basic questions and it kind of makes you think about things. And so I say to him, I say every time, I say, because a bad guy, the villain is the guy who does what he wants, takes what he wants, no matter who it hurts, no matter what it does to other people. The villain is always the guy who for one reason or another says, I'm going to do what I want, and I don't care who I hurt. Sometimes they're greedy, sometimes they're angry, sometimes they just want to tear everything apart. But what they don't care about is other people. It is the pursuit of self-interest. And so we can be a people who make all of our bad guys people who pursue self-interest, while at the same time, advocating the pursuit of self-interest. If we make it look noble and if we make it look responsible and if we make it look wise and pragmatic and frugal and all those things. But to build real wealth, to actually build something and to invest in something that actually means anything, we give away. We let go. We give freely not expecting in return. And then we are blown away and blessed beyond measure when we see even the fruit of it. Because the Bible's also really clear. Again, great salesman, right? Like, you won't really know most of the good that is, that is accomplished through the kingdom and your efforts 
you won't know it until you get to heaven and you actually see it. When you get glimpses of it here and there, it's like unbelievable. And this is the reason why Jesus tells other people to do it. Some of you like giving gifts. It's like your love language. You love going out and just, you find something, you see something, and you want to give it to a person, and you actually take more joy in giving than receiving. I don't know what that's like. I like receiving. But if you know how that feels, if you're like that, then then you kind of get this in the sense that, uh, that by being generous, I can accomplish more than I can just by spending money on myself. But we aren't generous because it makes us feel good and happy. That's not our only motivator to do it, because then it ultimately is still a selfish thing. Jesus doesn't tell people to be generous because it makes them feel good and happy. It's because Jesus sees the value of other people, he sees the value of the kingdom, and he says, this is worth investing in. And, and the only way to invest in it in a way that's actually going to change you and your heart for the kingdom is to do it without expecting to receive payment, to receive something in return. And so we give generously for two reasons. One, as an act of surrender. We give because we have to give. We, if you don't give regularly of the, of the resources that God has simply entrusted you with, then you will not really experience surrender as we ought to, as we, as we need to. You just won't, so you have to. I, I, I read a quote this week where somebody said, tithing is the training wheels of giving or generosity. And I think that's a good way of describing sometimes. Um, tithing is important. Tithing is, is how we refer to the, the percentage of our regular income that we give to the church. It's for the church to function and exist. We are not a for-profit. The produce was free. The coffee's free. But, and we use that phrase, tithe, which, which means a tenth, which comes from the Old Testament because really it's a, it's a guide that we, that we take from the from the the people in the Old Testament, God's people. And if anything, Jesus encourages us in every way in the New Covenant and the New Testament to go above and beyond what's in the Old Testament. But for, and and there's a a value, there's there's, for many of us, there is is a need to to like, I mean, if I don't go and I don't set up online a way for, for, for giving to happen, then I will absolutely not, not even remember it like every other part of my life. And so for some, that is like, for many, that is a thing that you have to do, not because it's not valuable or important to you. For others, it's the physical act of bringing it and giving it as an act of worship that you give your tithe. But, but this phrase, this idea that, that tithing is the training wheels of giving is to say that it is really the beginning of it. That we are not to just set aside something and then say, okay, now that that's determined, I'll go about living my life. That is the thing that really begins teaching us how to give. It begins teaching us how to be generous. And so to give as a real act of surrender is to give sacrificially, not sparingly. 
And the sacrificial part is what's hard because sacrificially means you feel it. The other reason that we give is because generous giving is an investment into the kingdom of God. It actually does something and it grows something. When I was a kid, I would go to my grandma's house. During the day, we would we'd watch TV shows, uh, a lot of Lucy, a lot of I Love Lucy, uh, a lot of Golden Girls, and uh, we watched a lot of Gilligan's Island. Uh, how that show ever got made, I don't know. They would never, in the modern age, make a show about an island. It would just not go anywhere. You would never watch it. But they make this show, Gilligan's Island, where these people wash up on an island. It's like, how, how are we going to keep this going? They, they had to say, you know, like, how are you going to keep it beyond a couple episodes? Oh, it's easy. Stuff's going to wash up on the island. That's it. That's it. That's it. Stuff will wash up, right? You know, a, a, like, a, like a, spa, a UFO washes up. And it, I mean, really, stuff washes up, and that's just the show for that week, right? You have a professor, you have a rich person, you have movie star. I mean, you, you, you okay, now we'll see how they handle this, right? So they're living on this island. And there's this episode where Gilligan goes out and he finds a bunch of, bunch of fruits and vegetables and stuff that have washed up, you know. Now, if you're living on a deserted island, then this is a big deal. You have something new that you can eat because all you've been eating is coconuts and stuff like that. But he is smart. You know, we all know Gilligan's a smart guy. And uh, he, he, he plants what he finds and he grows this vegetable garden. Now, it turns out to be atomic seeds and, and he gets strong and he does crazy things, but, you know, hijinks ensue and all that stuff, but the way that we treat the resources that we have are, are often like a person who is, like, deserted on an island somewhere, and, and what has come to us, we're like, I have to consume it if I don't. If I don't take it, then it, it will be a waste. It will be gone. I don't know what I'm going to get tomorrow. I don't know what there's going to be tomorrow. I don't know, but we know that all real growth comes from the death that comes from the seed that is planted, right? All fruit comes from that. And so we either take the benefit now, today, in the moment, right here, or we plant that seed. And we say, I watch it grow some other way, which is a hard thing to do. It takes discipline. It takes sacrifice. And we, we handle the resources that we have so often like people who are so desperate for every bite of food, everything that we could get, rather than generously, freely using it, not for our own selves primarily, but for the good of others and for the kingdom. Because generous giving is an investment in the kingdom too. It is as if Jesus is saying, take this thing, this money that is commonly used for evil and use it for good. I mean, the truth is the, the resources that you have been given, that God has given you these resources and said, I've given you these resources so that you can do what I want you to do with them. Not him, not her, not them. I've given those resources to you so that you can use these things in a way that reflects who I am in your life and what you know I desire to see done in the world. That's why I gave them to you. And I didn't give to them. Christ's primary argument against amassing material wealth isn't that it's morally wrong, but simply that it's a poor investment because material things just won't stand the test of time. I am convinced that the single biggest thing that gets in the way of us being generous for the kingdom is this. We do not have an eternal perspective on our lives. Let's be honest. How often do we really think about eternity? How often do we really think about heaven? How often do we really think about any of that? 
Not very often for most of us. And so our resources reflect that we feel like this is it. I've got one shot at this here, and I'm going to make it count, and I'm going to enjoy it. But the only way to do this, to really do it in the spirit in which Jesus talks about in this kingdom, that the Bible tells us about in the kingdom, that we even see with God's people in the Old Testament, and you are not going to like this last slide. I'm just going to tell you right now. You're going to wish so bad that I gave you a number. You're going to wish so bad. Is this. You lower your standard of living. Is that what we see in the kingdom of God is that those who are a part of this kingdom, their standard of living is lower than the person next to them who is not a part of the kingdom, who has the same amount of money the same amount of resources, the same amount of opportunity. C.S. Lewis says it uh, in a quote here, the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. There ought to be things we should like to do that cannot and cannot do because our giving excludes them. Ouch. He's saying we should feel it. This is why, this is why I say that, that, that like sort of regular scheduled giving, while important and necessary, is but the beginning for people. Because as we live our lives, our instinct is to raise our standard of living, to climb up to the next rung on the ladder every chance that we get. Most of the times in America, if we're honest, we kind of aspire to that before we get to it. So we go, well, I'll buy a house that I can't quite afford yet, but I'll be able to afford it in a few years. I'll buy a car I probably can't afford yet, but I'll be able to afford it if I do this thing, if you do that thing, and you do that thing. And so every opportunity that we get, we of course go up in our standard of living because that's why we have the stuff that we have. And that's what the people around us do. And if enough of us agree it's normal, then let's just not talk about it. But what Jesus advocates here in the kingdom of God is he says, you will have a life that looks different. It is different than if you weren't a part of the kingdom from the person who has what they have. And, and this, this seems so unwise to us. It seems like, but what about, like, is this really a good idea? I mean, hasn't God given me these things? I, do I want to provide for the people in my, lot, in my lives? Like, okay, we'll just, we'll take me out of the equation. We'll talk about anybody in my life, right, that I can take care of or help provide for, right? Why would I do that for them? That's unwise. Doesn't God want me to be wise? Doesn't God care about wisdom? Can't we say that for the sake of wisdom, that some of the things Jesus said, he probably, I don't know, wasn't like, Maybe he was misquoted. How about that? We'll say he was misquoted, right? Because they're not wise, and God wants us to do wise things with the resources that he's given us. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus does tell a rich guy to give away all that he has. And when you give away all that you have, I don't know if you know this about math or anything, when you give away all that you have, at the end, you're not still kind of rich or a little bit rich or middle class. You are now a poor guy, okay? So he said, you go from being a rich guy to a poor guy. That's how you get into the kingdom, because that was his God, and that was his, that was, everything was tied up in that. He, he, a woman who is poor goes and puts money in an offering, and Jesus blesses it. How many of you would let that happen? How many of you would not think maybe what Jesus wants is for me to give it for her, to take her place, right? But no, Jesus says, she's got it. 
She gives out of what, she, what littles that she has. That doesn't seem wise to me. And so our objections about, well, God wouldn't want me to actually lower the standard of living that I have just so that I can be generous with things. is to say that Jesus didn't call his disciples to leave their very livelihoods, their jobs, to follow him. Wisdom is, above all else, rooted in the fear of the Lord. A recognition that what God says is most important. The enemy of wisdom is foolishness, and Jesus doesn't cause us to be foolish. Foolish is not what he calls these people to. Foolish is, is buying a dirt bike when you don't have money for food, right? Foolish is eating out every single week instead of every single meal, every single meal instead of learning how to cook. Foolishness is never saving for what you know will come inevitably every time. Foolishness is not putting oil in your car and then being surprised when your car breaks down. To be wise means to think about the future and to plan accordingly, to not leave everything in your life to chance. And if I'm thinking about my future, and I'm thinking about the future of the people around me, and I'm thinking about the future of all the people in the world, what do I think matters most for the future of those people? What do I think matters most for my future? That my standard of living here be higher, or that my standard of living here be lower for the sake of the kingdom? because of what that generosity will do, both to me and for the sake of the kingdom. What God can do with that. The difficulty about this, about, about talking about this idea of, of wealth in the Bible, is that it's different from other things. Because we have like budgets and we oftentimes are spending, if anything, more than we have, if we're honest. So when we talk about about wealth, and we talk about generosity, we're usually like, hey, uh, you know, maybe if you talked to me a month ago, that would have been different, but not right now. And this is why it's good to, as a church, be able to talk about money, not when we're necessarily saying um, that, that we're financially in a bad place and we need it right here, right now. The thing about wealth in the kingdom is it's like anything else. What we must actually do is sit down with one another, with ourselves, in the moments when we actually evaluate our life and say, what is my standard of living here? In the moment before you buy the house, that's more than you can probably afford. But the realtor, they really convinced you this is a good decision, right? Even though it's more than I plan to spend. The, the, the moment that you buy the car that's more than you plan to go in and buy, then you know that you need the moment that you buy a nicer car than you should or then you buy a, a new car when you should buy a used one. Those are the times when we stop and we say to ourselves and, and we say, can I be generous? Because if all I do is carve out some of my funds and then spend everything else until the next time I get a raise or the next time I make more money and then I, I plan on how I'm going to spend all that stuff, how can I be generous it, when the Holy Spirit leads how when God puts something before me, someone in front of me in my path and says, generously give to this person, not expecting anything in return, and maybe even no one knowing, then you can do it. The only way that we can actually have flexibility with our wealth 
The only way that we can be teachable about our wealth and our heart is to have flexibility with it. And the only way that we can have flexibility is if we stop and think about it before we spend all of our money. I know that sounds like rocket science, but I've done a lot of research and it ends up that's the case. So rather than have to pick a number, have to pick something and say that's what it has to be, the thing that the kingdom of God tells, that we see in the kingdom of God in the Bible is more, it describes a person who looks at their life and says, I should look like someone who has less than I have because I give generously of the rest. And I give in such a way that it's sacrificial, meaning I sacrifice. I sacrifice something. I don't have something I would have had. I feel it in my life, and the people around me maybe who are affected by my resources feel it too. But it's because I believe that the most important thing in life is not my standard of living. And I believe that God doesn't give me everything I have so that I can be at the standard of living that everyone else is. But that instead, I can be generous with it. It's a scary thing to do, especially if money's your God. Especially if you think that the only reason you'll be okay tomorrow is because you have money in the bank. Or if you think that the only reason you'll be okay if you get sick or if something happens or if you lose your job is because you amass everything that you have and you can't be generous with it. Because you think that what God wants is for you to be wise and pragmatic, to be cautious and, and put all your money in a bin and swim in it. 